My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I'm really glad to be with you guys. It's, I was gone last week running the Twin Cities Marathon with 10 others from church. And I just want to say thank you for your support, your prayer for us, your support. Some of you came out and cheered us on. Some of you gave finances and some of you were praying. And so we ran the Twin Cities Marathon to raise money for Team World Vision. That's my bracelet right here. It says, Go Farther Together, Team World Vision. And we were, with your help, we were able to raise $7,795, which was enough to, yeah, thank you. And that's enough to provide 155 people in Africa clean water for life. So thank you for partnering with us in that. Um, I'm really glad to be back here, though, because it's a lot more comfortable and enjoyable for me to be here worshiping Jesus with you by singing and reading his word and studying it than it is to be running 26 miles in the rain. So um, you feel more like family, more like home than ever before, because this time last week I was running and uh, that's sometimes enjoyable and sometimes not so enjoyable. But uh, thanks, Matt, for nailing the sermon last week on suffering. As we continue to walk through the book of Colossians, Matt looked at good news for our suffering last week. And I highly encourage you to go out and to listen to the sermon from last week if you missed it. And then today we're going to be looking at good news for our shame. Really, it, shame is just one word for many different characteristics that we experience in life. I think most of us who are gathered here today, all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're familiar with guilt, with shame, with, with insecurity, with comparison, with inconsistency, with doubt. Those are feelings that we've all had. Those are experiences that we've all had. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we feel them fairly often. I know in my own life, I've felt shame, guilt, insecurity, inconsistency, doubt, questions. And many of the people that I counsel are plagued by those things as well. They're just a, they're a standard reality of the life that we live. And so today we're going to look at God's good news that meets us in that place. If you've ever felt shame, if you've ever felt guilt, if you've ever felt um, like, you're, like you just don't measure up, like you have a sense of insecurity in yourself or, or just inconsistency. You say one thing and do another. Anybody? Probably, right? And uh, just whatever it is, I, I feel like we carry these heavy burdens around oftentimes. And, and we, like to, we like to hide it. We like to put on a good face and pretend that everything's okay. But really, we have this deep brokenness in our soul, do we not? And you look around the world and 50, 59 people dead in Las Vegas because of a shooting and just the, the questions that that brings and the, the shame and all of that's attached to that and the fighting around the world. And I mean, we, we turn things into political battles rather than having broken hearts. And as the Bible says, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. And just as, as a people, as a human race, I think it's undeniable that we're broken that something in us is deeply broken. And so this morning, we find in God's word that there is good news for everything. As we go through the book of Colossians, that's what we're looking at. There's good news for everything. There's good news for our brokenness. There's good news for our shame. There's good news for our guilt. There's good news for our insecurity. There's good news for our doubt. There's good news for our questions. There's good news for all of that. And that's what we're going to see here today as we continue on in the book of Colossians so I'm going to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, where we're currently at. And I'm going to ask that you stand and follow along as I read. It's 
It's uh, on the Pew Bible on page 984. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take that one with you. And if you just don't have a Bible with you, open that up and look at it. I want your words, your eyes to be on God's word more so than hearing what's coming out of my mouth. I want you to see what God has said. So please grab a Bible and look at it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossia 2,000 years ago these words which apply well to us today. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father God, I am unworthy to proclaim this good word. I'm incapable of doing it justice. But Jesus, the worthy one, is capable. And he's living in me. And God, we acknowledge that us as a church gathered together today are unworthy of you and that we are incapable of fully understanding what is before us. But we believe and we acknowledge that you, Jesus, the worthy and capable one, is living in us. That you are among us and that you have the power and the ability to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to feel, and our hands and our feet to go. And so we ask that you would open us up to your word, to your truth, to your gospel this morning. We trust you, Jesus. And I pray that we would receive your word and the power of your spirit. Have your way among us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the big idea from this passage, I've kind of synthesized it down for us, it is that human philosophy and tradition brings death. Human philosophy and tradition brings death, but Jesus gives life. I think that's the big idea of all these verses that we just read. We're going to put it together. And at the end of the day, I think this is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter 2,000 years ago to a church in Colossia, that's what he's writing to them, and it applies to them, and and by extension, it applies to us. Paul is warning the church in Colossia to watch out for human philosophy and tradition. Look at verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. He's warning them. He's saying, in your church, in your community, in your city, there are people who will take you captive by saying things that have the appearance of wisdom. 
Look at, look at verse 23. We'll dig more into this one next week. But verse 23, he said, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. We'll dig more into that passage next week. But Paul is warning the church, saying, You'll hear things in the world. You'll hear things in the church. Your culture, human philosophy, and even religious church tradition will say things that have the appearance of wisdom. Your flesh will say, that sounds wise. I should follow that teaching. I should follow that. But in the end, it brings death. It keeps us captive. It imprisons our soul. It imprisons our mind. It confuses us about what is true and is right and is good. And it leads us to death. But the good news is that Jesus gives life. That's what we see happening here in the church in Colossia 2,000 years ago. Paul is warning them. And by extension, he's warning us. And I think this is very true for us today. This is here to warn us and to help us. And so Paul warns them specifically about human philosophy and tradition. So here's what philosophy means. Philosophy, it comes from two Greek words, phileo, which means to love, and sophia, wisdom. So philosophy is to love wisdom. That's not a bad thing. So don't hear me saying with this, with this phrase right here, human philosophy and tradition bring death, don't hear me saying that all philosophy in and of itself is bad because philosophy at its essence, at its core, is to love wisdom. That's a good thing, right? We should be people who are seeking wisdom, who are receiving wisdom, who are listening to wisdom. We want to be a people of wisdom, but I think what we have to be careful of is what type of wisdom, is it true wisdom? I think that the key here is that Paul is saying that there's this human philosophy, this human tradition that doesn't proceed, that doesn't, it's not birthed out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not birthed out of God's truth. And it may take little bits and pieces of God's truth to help, it, to help make it look wise on the surface. But underneath the hood, there's not true wisdom. And so Paul warns us there, philosophy isn't bad. To love wisdom is good and right. The problem is, is that if our philosophy, if our pursuit of wisdom is rooted in creation rather than creator. So the wisdom that we're seeking, is it handed down from mankind or is it given by God and passed through mankind? An example of this from my own life um, in year four of our marriage, my wife and I were having some struggle. I know that's probably a surprise to some of you that married people have struggles. Um, even pastors have struggles. Imagine that. So my wife and I, we were, we were wrestling through some hard times in our marriage, and I went to go see a counselor about this. I thought, you know what? I, I want to I I get after this. I want to figure this out. I'm not going to sit passively by and let our marriage suffer. And so I went to see a counselor. I did, I did a little bit of work. To, I wanted to find a Christian counselor, someone rooted in God's word. I thought, you know, there's counselors who aren't Christians who are out there who have wisdom and have good principles and have good ideas, but I want to find someone who's rooted in God's word and God's truth. And so I did some searching, I talked to some people, and I found somebody who was a Christian counselor. I went to this guy, I shared with him some stuff that was on my heart, some, I, I confessed some sin to him, and he basically minimized it, and he was like, it's not that big of a deal, don't worry about it. And the more we dug in, and I asked him actually, as I sat with him, I said, so you're a Christian, what church are you involved in? He's like, well, I do a Friday morning Bible study with some people. I'm not in a church. I don't go to church. And that is a common phenomenon in our day, that you can love Jesus but not the church. 
Actually, Matt touched on this last week. That, that's, that's a crazy thought. The New Testament Christians would think you're crazy if you say you love Jesus, but you hate the church or you don't attend a church. And so that tipped me off to this counselor that he's using some philosophy. He, he, he has an appearance of wisdom, but he hasn't even committed himself to the body of Christ. And so I continued to listen and I, I continued to try to pick out the good and the bad. And, you know, he probably had some good things to say. But at the end of the day, I, I only went once. I didn't go back to him because... It was human philosophy. He started talking about the Greek philosophers. And he was using some Greek philosophy with me. And, and I don't think everything that the Greek philosophers had was bad. And, and oftentimes in our, universe, in our universities, they'll teach us that, the Greek, that philosophy started in with the Greek philosophers, right? When you think of philosophy, you think of Plato, you think of Socrates, you think of these Greek philosophers. I think philosophy predates Greek philosophers, I think it started with the Hebrews. I think it started with God's people. I mean, you read the Proverbs. There's some philosophy there. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of philosophy there from King Solomon. It predates the Greek philosophers. So philosophy, the love of wisdom, isn't bad. But what's it rooted in? Is it passed down from human tradition? Is it, is it twisted? Is it interpreted by humans? Is it built by humans? Does it take God as a foundation and then build upon God's word some extra things? So I think we need to think through that. What type of philosophy are we listening to? What type of philosophies are we being taught? And are we able to sift through them and, and find the good and the bad? The second one, tradition. Tradition comes from a Greek word, parad paradosis. And it means to, to be handed down from one to another. It's like hand-me-down clothes, really. Um, so tradition can be really bad, right? If you ask my wife, who's a second-born girl, hand-me-down clothes are not the favorite thing. Any of you ever gotten hand-me-down clothes? Probably not your favorite thing. But tradition just means something passed down. It's something that's been handed down. And so, like philosophy, tradition isn't necessarily bad. There's good tradition, right? Maybe your family has a tradition of going to a Christmas Eve service. Or maybe your family has a tradition of Easter baskets on Easter Sunday from a bunny or whatever. Tradition isn't bad or good in and of itself. But again, what is it handed down from? What's the essence of our tradition? Just because something's been handed down doesn't make it good or bad. But like philosophy, it depends on what it's been handed down from. What type of traditions are we following? What type of traditions are we letting influence the way that we live in our spiritual practice and insight? Another example from my own life where I've been led astray by tradition. When I was a teenager, I went to a, I'm not going to call it a church camp because of the teaching that I got there. And it wasn't a camp that we support and that we're familiar with. It was, for some reason, I, I, I went to this camp kind of outside of my normal circles one weekend. I thought it would be fun to experience a different church culture and camp. And so I went to this camp. And at, at this camp, we had this breakout session where we were like supposed to talk with one of the counselors. And I ended up confessing some sin. I'm, I'm in seventh grade. I, un, I ended up confessing some sin to this camp counselor. And again, he minimized it. To me, it was a big deal. God was convicting me of some sin in my life, and I, and I brought it to this camp counselor, and he was like, that's not a big deal, and he actually gave me some works to do to get rid of my sin. Some of you grew up Catholic, and you know kind of the Hail Mary thing. This wasn't a Catholic camp, but it had a similar feel where you go to the priest, you confess your sin, and he gives you some, something to do to get rid of the guilt and the shame from your sin, right? Does it work? No. 
you do it and then you hope, well, I hope that worked. Hopefully the priest is right. I don't know. So I went to this camp and, and this counselor did the same thing. I confessed sin and he minimized it. And then he said, here's a prayer that you can say, and this will get you right with God. And it wasn't a prayer of repentance. It was a prayer of, I had to like do some, it was a prayer and then he asked me to go out and do some good works and then that would make sure that I was right with God. And, and so again, it's a tradition. It was a religious tradition that was handed down by people which did nothing to deal with my guilt and my shame. What I was feeling from my sin, it did nothing. And so Paul is warning the Colossians and by extension us to beware of human philosophy and tradition that's handed down from man that has its origin in creation rather than creator is the philosophy is the tradition that we're ascribing to does it originate with people does it come from plato or does it come from god is it handed down from the creator of the universe or did it originate with his creation so there's four major philosophies and traditions that are present in the church in Colossia from what, what I've studied and what I think based off of this letter in some of the cultural context, cultural context of Colossia. Four major philosophies and tradition, traditions. They are Judaism, Gnosticism, Asceticism, and Syncretism. Here's what that means. Judaism, the Old Testament religion, there were Jews in Colossia that were, they, they were living their life on works righteousness, Okay, they believed that they had to fulfill and do the Old Testament law in order to keep God pleased with them, that God might forgive their sins and that God might accept them. So there was this legalistic approach to faith and religion. This is a, a human tradition handed down, and it, this originated with God. The Old Testament law came from God, but what the religious leaders in Judaism did, they actually built what's called the hedge around the law, so they didn't want to break God's law, so they built up all these extra laws to keep them from getting even close to breaking God's law. And as we go through the New Testament, we know that Jesus came to fulfill the law. So the, the 613 Old Testament laws that they were given by God, they didn't have to uphold and fulfill anymore. Jesus fulfilled that law for them. But the Jews are, are doing this works-based righteousness. And so Paul here is writing to remind them that you can't earn God's favor by fulfilling the law. In fact, the point of the law was to remind you that you need a Savior, that you need a Messiah, because you can't live righteously. You can't do it. We try and we try and we try and we know that's true. Am I right? How many of you sinned this morning? How many of you sinned last night? How many of you sinned without even realizing it? We can't fulfill righteousness. We can't fulfill God's law. And so Paul is writing to remind the Judaizers and those who, would be, who, those who would be held captive by Judaism and who would think that they could attain their salvation by fulfilling the law, Paul is writing to tell them to trust in Jesus. He's the good news. They can't do it on their own. Gnosticism, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's kind of this secret intellectual head knowledge. There were mystery cults surrounding Gnosticism and and so they were trying to earn favor in the, spiritual being, in the spiritual beings by trying to gain the secret knowledge. Rather than epinosis, which we talked about last week, which is a holistic knowledge that goes from the head to the heart and out through the hands, it was just a head knowledge. There's kind of this hypocrisy because they know things, but they don't put it into action. And then asceticism. This is another human philosophy, a piece of human philosophy and tradition happening in Colossia. This is abstinence from things because they want to be 
um, morally upright. It's, it's, uh, they believed matter was bad, but the spirit was good. And so they wouldn't eat certain things. They wouldn't drink certain things. They wouldn't go to certain plays. They, it was kind of the in the world, but not of the world idea on steroids. This very bad legalistic bend where rather than serving and loving people, they would judge people because of what they ate and what they drank. So that's asceticism. That's happening here in Colossia. And then syncretism is a melting pot of belief. It's, it's kind of this idea that all roads lead to heaven, that we can take all the different world religions and pick and choose from them what we want. That was happening here in Colossia. Rome is ruling the world at this time. And, and the genius of Rome is that they built, have you heard of the Romans road? Not like the Bible thing where you go through the book of Romans and lead someone to salvation, but the roads that the Romans built. They built all these roads which connected culture. Essentially what Rome did is, is similar to what the internet is doing for us now. Right now you can pull out your phone and you can communicate with people in China. You can read about China, Chinese philosophies and ideas. Roman roads connected societies. They connected cultures. Granted, it wasn't as quick as a little click, but all of a sudden I could get from Colossia to Ephesus and I could hear what the Ephesians are studying and learning and thinking about. And so syncretism began to become a big issue in Colossia because there's all these different cultures, all this melting pot. And so what the Christians were tempted to do is they would say, well, the Jews are really good at this, so I'm going to take a piece of their religion. And the Gnostics are really good at this, so I'm going to take a piece of their religion. And um, asceticism is appealing in this way, so I'm going to take some of their religion. And I'm going to create kind of my own religion. That's syncretism. It's not Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. All roads lead to heaven. Who are we to say that it's only through Jesus? Although Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. So these four ideologies, these four philosophies and traditions exist in the church in Colossia 2,000 years ago. Do they seem to exist here and now today? Works righteousness? I can earn God's favor by fulfilling his law? We just sang about it this morning that we can't. Though our sins they are many, his mercy is more. That's the gospel. His mercy frees us. So is, is the spirit of Judaism alive here today? Legalism and works righteousness. Of course it is. Paul's warning to the Colossians is a good warning to us. Is the spirit of Gnosticism alive today? Kind of this intellectual pursuit, wanting to grow intellectually and not put it into practice. Of course it is. And it works its way out in us but in hypocrisy. I mean, academia is filled with people studying and knowing and not doing anything about that knowledge that they've received. And, and knowledge without action, knowledge without love, knowledge without service, it puffs us up and it fills us with pride. Talk to anyone who's spent time recently on a university campus, Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter. There, there's a Gnosticism in this pursuit of knowledge without action tends us towards pride and towards judgment of others. What about asceticism? Kind of abstinence from certain, certain things in order to please God, and then it becomes a judgment of other people who don't abstain from those things. Present today? It's, it's very present today. Syncretism. I think this is probably the biggest one that we wrestle with here today. I think this is probably the biggest philosophy 
that we wrestle with today, syncretism, or we could say it as tolerance now today. Our, our society is all about tolerance and acceptance, and that's good. We should accept others. Amen? We as Christians should be the most hospitable, accepting people in the world because we have the truth of God's word, and he calls us to be hospitable. But the, the philosophy and the thinking of our day-to-day, it's not that we accept others, but we can disagree with them. It's a fallacy. Really, the philosophy of our world is that if you disagree with me, you don't accept me. That's a fallacy. Since when has that been true? I can disagree with you, and I can still give you a hug and love you and welcome you into my home and have a meal with you and enjoy your company. In fact, that's true of every one of us. None of us agree on everything. So any of your friends, any of your family, you have disagreements with, but you still accept them and you welcome them. So that's the spirit of our age, is it not? Tolerance. And tolerance means I don't tolerate you. That's what tolerance is supposed to mean, right? I tolerate you. What is, if you say, oh yeah, I tolerate that, you put up with it, right? But tolerance now today has turned to, I celebrate you. I have to endorse and agree and embrace everything that you do. That's just not true. So we need to be careful of the, the human philosophy and traditions of our day because our world is teaching us that we have to give a thumbs up to everybody's choices on everything, and if we don't, we're not accepting, we're not tolerant. But tolerant can be, I love you, you're welcome in my house, you can live under my roof, and I'll tolerate you, but I don't like that thing, or I don't agree with that thing. So we need to be aware and careful. The reality is that human philosophy and tradition leads to spiritual and emotional death. It immerses us in shame and guilt. I mean, religious works righteousness heaps on guilt. It heaps on shame because we're looking for freedom and we keep trying to do more good and, it, and, and we feel guilty about the bad that we're doing. We feel shame for the sin that we've committed or shame from sin that's been committed against us. Syncretism, it creates doubt. I mean, we question everything and, and we're not sure that we can believe anything. And so we need to be careful of human tradition and philosophy. We need to learn. We want to be lovers of wisdom. We want to be philosophers. But what's the core? What's the root? Is it coming from the creator or is it twisted by creation? And so we need to be careful of that. That's what Paul's warning us of. But there's good news for us. And that's what he's giving us. And that's what I want to camp on now. There's good news for us in Jesus Christ. Paul gives us three ways in this passage that Jesus gives life. And I'm sure there's more, but there's three core ways, three specific ways in this passage alone that Jesus gives us life. In the whole of Scripture, there's hundreds of ways, thousands of ways. There's, there's an infinite, infinite amount of ways that Jesus gives life. But in this passage, there's three biggies. The first one is he hides us in himself. This, this, the reason I have in himself in quotes there is because every week for the past couple months, it seems like we've been running into this phrase, in him, in Christ. It's here in this passage as well. There's six in him phrases in these few verses and two with him phrases in these few verses that we read. Jesus gives us life by hiding us in himself, by wrapping us up in himself. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, as verse 6 says, therefore, as you received Jesus, 
If we've received Jesus, we have a new identity. We've received a new life. We've received a new nature. He hides us in himself. Look at how Paul says it in chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives us a new nature, a new being. He hides us in him. We have to receive him like a birthday gift. I I always think birthday gifts are fascinating, aren't they? It's your birthday and you get a bunch of gifts. What did you do to earn those gifts? Nothing. Your mom did all the work. She should get all the gifts. You came into the world crying and screaming and wanting everything and people are giving you gifts. That's how it is with the gospel. What do we do to earn it? Nothing. Jesus should get all the gifts. He gets all of our worship. He did everything to earn our salvation. But we have to receive that gift, just like a birthday gift. If, if I was to give you a birthday gift all wrapped up and nice, and you were to just set that on your shelf and leave it all wrapped up and nice, and you'd say, well, you wrapped it so nicely, I don't want to rip into it, which would never be the case because my wrapping job is awful. <laughs> but say someone who knows how to wrap a gift really well did it, and you thought, this is just the most beautiful gift I've ever seen wrapped. And you set it on your shelf, and I come over to your house, and a year later, there it is. You haven't opened that yet? No, it's too beautiful to open. Well, it's not going to serve you any good if it's sitting on your shelf unopened. And so we have to receive Jesus as Lord. We have to open up the gift. We have to, we have to uncover the wrapping around him and receive what he has for us so that we can be hidden in him, so that we can receive this new nature. It, it tells us here that we need to walk in him. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so receive him, so walk in him. Again, that in language. We walk in him. What do you do with a person that you're falling in love with? No, nobody's falling in love. Walks, thank you. Somebody knows how to fall in love. Good work. <laughs> I mean, when you go for a walk with somebody, that's a classic way to know, I want to get to know you. Let's go for a walk. Maybe some of you don't do that. That's fine. But, but that's the language that Paul's getting at here. He's saying, so walk in him. Spend time with him. Do life with him, hand in hand. You and Jesus, go about life together. He hides us in him. He gives us a new nature. He gives us a new identity. He wants to spend time with us. He lives in us, as Colossians 1.27 says. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. He's in us. We're in him. He hides us in himself. We have a new nature. Jesus provides for us an identity that human philosophy and tradition never could. Isn't that what many of the people in our world are seeking? An identity. They, They want to belong somewhere. They want to be identified as something worthwhile. Maybe you want to be identified as an intellectual. So you spend all your time learning and you spend your time with in, in intellectual societies of the world and it becomes an identity. Or maybe you want to be identified as an avid outdoorsman so you spend your time doing outdoorsy things or as a sports player, or as a musician. And so we spend our time doing the things that we want to be identified with but at the end of the day, those things don't give us worth and value, do they? They don't satisfy. They can help you feel like you belong for a while. They can help you to experience some temporary pleasure but they don't change the deep sense of who we are. They don't get rid of our guilt, our shame, our insecurity, our comparison, our questions, and our doubt, do they? No. And if we're seeking answers for those things in them, it only piles up more and more. So Jesus gives us life by granting us a new identity that human philosophy and tradition never could. 
He hides us in himself. We're covered in Jesus. Second one, second way that we see Jesus giving good, giving life in this passage is that he forgives all of our trespasses. Look at 13 and 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses, and we feel that sometimes, don't we? I mean, that's the thing. Guilt and shame and comparison and insecurity, it feels like death. And our world feels that. That's why most of the people that I counsel, they're filled with fear and shame and guilt and failure. They're feeling the effects of death. Human philosophy and tradition is leading them to death. And so Paul is writing, he's saying, and you who are dead in your trespasses, that's missing the mark, that's sin, that's stepping over the line. God has created a way for us to live and we have gone outside of his boundaries. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He gives us life by forgiving everything we've ever done. He forgives all of our trespasses. Look at that word in there, all. He's forgiven us all of our trespasses, not some, not the not, the not so bad ones, not just the ones that you've begged for forgiveness for, but if you're in Christ, all of them. Notice he doesn't say that he forgives all, but he forgives all who trespass, who are in him. And so again, back to the receiving thing. To receive his forgiveness, we have to receive him. Paul doesn't say that God just forgives all people. He forgives all all the trespasses of those who trust in him. So if we want to receive life, if we want to receive forgiveness, we have to trust in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through him. And in him is forgiveness for everything you've ever done, everything you will do. He gives life. He erases our guilt and our shame and our insecurity and our inconsistency and our doubt, and our questions, and our fears. It may take a lifetime, but that's what he's actively doing here and now because he loves us. When we receive him, he forgives us for everything. Now, the human philosophy and tradition of the world will, will want us to um, feel like that's really exclusive and judgmental. And in a sense, it is exclusive because it's through one person, right? Jesus Christ. There's only one way to receive forgiveness for all of your trespasses. But it's open to all. Everyone who's ever lived on the face of the earth has the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus Christ. This is a call for that. It's incredibly inclusive. It's open to all people to believe in Jesus Christ. And oftentimes we'll, we'll, think that, we'll think that like forgiveness should just be extended to everyone whether or not they believe. But forgiveness isn't cheap, it's costly. Forgiveness isn't free. It's free for us. That's the gospel. Forgiveness is free for us, but it was very costly to Jesus. He had to give up everything. He gave up his life. God's law demanded a sacrifice for sin. That sacrifice was life. The Old Testament was filled with sacrificing life to atone for sin. And the, the payment for our sin should be the shedding of blood. 
It is the shedding of blood. But we no longer sacrifice animals here at church. And no one's asking you to give up your life for your sin, to die for your sin. Why? Because Jesus did that for us. That's what it's saying here. He's saying that all of your, all of your transgressions are forgiven. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespass, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. So we are piling up, we are heaping up debt against a holy God by our sin. There's a big distance between who God is and who we are, and we continue adding to that, heaping up debt, piling up debt. Anyone who's ever lived with financial debt, you know the burden that that is on you. Same thing is true with sin. We have this massive pile of debt that's a burden upon us. And what does it say? that he cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The legal demand is that we owe our life. There is, a, there is a payment for our sin, that's death, and there's a punishment for our sin. There's a payment for sin, that's life, and there's a punishment for sin, that's death. But he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. God takes our debt and the payment that was due, he puts it on the cross in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills the law's demand by living the life that we couldn't, a perfect life. By dying the death that we should have, he's the punishment and the payment. And by raising from death, defeating sin. There are two primary theological terms for this. Penal substitution is so that Jesus is our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin. Penal substitution. Jesus is the substitute who pays the penalty for our sin. Or the vicarious atonement which means that Jesus is the, the vicar or the representative who stands in our place as the atonement, or again, the payment for us. And he sheds his blood so that we don't have to. Both of those terms have become controversial in the last few decades, though I don't understand it because they're all over in Scripture. And what a glorious truth that Jesus received the payment that we, that, that we deserve, that Jesus paid the debt that we owe, that Jesus shed his blood so that we don't have to? The world's philosophies and the world's traditions aren't giving you that. They're saying it's all on your shoulders. You need to be a better person. You need to attain more knowledge. You need to find a greater identity. You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure this life thing out. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ says you can't. Try and try and try and try. And all it does is pile up more guilt, more shame, more inconsistency, more insecurity, more comparison. You look around and say, if only I could do life like those people. Or if only I had as much intellect as them. Or if only I could do this or do that. And the world piles on guilt and shame. And here comes Jesus offering us life, forgiving our sins, wrapping us in himself. And then the last one, I love this, silencing the accuser. Where does guilt and shame and inconsistency and insecurity and fear come from? The philosophies and traditions of the world pile it on us, but where does it originate? Satan, the father of lies, the accuser. And look at what Paul says here in verse 15. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The, the rulers and authorities that he's talking about here are Satan and his, and his demons, the great accuser, the one who wants us to feel guilt and shame and inconsistency and insecurity, the one who piles all of that on us. The results of human philosophy and tradition are those feelings that we hate, and Satan is the one accusing us. 
And Paul here says that Jesus disarmed them. They have no more power. Their accusations have no more weight if we're in Jesus Christ. Because God looks at Jesus and he says, they're no longer guilty. So try as the world might to, to, to take us captive with their teachings. Jesus paid it all that we might live. He has silenced the accuser. Satan is whispering at us saying, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. You don't know enough. You don't do enough. You're not spiritually active enough. You don't pray enough. You don't, whatever it is, whatever it is for you, that's Satan whispering in your ear saying, you don't measure up. And you know what God is saying? Jesus stood in the place. He paid the debt that you owed. So trust in him, rest in him, believe in him. Let's just close this out actually with reading Zechariah chapter 3. In the spirit of Jesus silencing the accuser, I want you to see this passage. It's a beautiful picture of what this looks like. Page 798 in the Pew Bible. 794 in the Pew Bible. There's a whole big context to this passage which we don't have time to get into. But let's read it and see what God says about silencing the accuser and how God does that in Jesus Christ. Zechariah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is Zechariah the prophet having a vision from God. He says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. So the high priest was the one selected among the Jews who would go before God to represent the people and he would bring the sins of the people before God. And the high priest went through this whole series of things to, to become holy, to stay holy, to try and be pure, to go into God's presence. And so it was important that the high priest had the right clothing on, that the high priest went through the right rituals to come before God as holy as he possibly could. Yet it was impossible for him. Here's what it says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, the accuser. Satan means the accuser. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The priest, rather than having pure vestments, pure garments on, he's guilty. He's clothed in filthy, gar filthy garments. That's the truth. He's guilty of sin. We are guilty of sin. We're filled, we have on filthy garments. And here's what, how God responds. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Guilty as charged, but take it away. And here's new pure vestments. You're forgiven. Your record of debt has been canceled. The punishment for your sin has been paid. And I said, let them put the clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's what happens to us in Jesus Christ. Though our sins, they are scarlet, we are made white as snow in him. He, silenced the, he silences the accuser. Praise God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. 
May we trust more and more in you. May we increase in our knowledge of you and your word and your will and your ways. Lord, may, may you empower us through your spirit to sift through what's good and bad and right and true and lovely and honorable. May we be a discerning people who are able to hear the philosophies and traditions of the world and receive from them what have echoes of truth and discard from them what, what would lead us astray, the things that would take us captive, the things that would steal our joy, and the things that would lead to death. And may we wholeheartedly embrace you, Jesus, for you are the way and the truth and the life. You give life. We believe that and we want to receive that. And so we receive you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for silencing our accuser. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.